mature audience history podcast, Dark Histories, True Crime, Salacious Stories by historians for your R-rated educational intellect. This is Grim. Benjamin Franklin was beset by spies in France and fed them amusing disinformation about electrocuting the British Isles with a chain from Calais and igniting their ships ablaze with oversized magnifying glasses. They believed this shit, for a hot minute at least. But amidst the diplomatic spy novel excitement, where was our favorite grim Philadelphian's daughter, his wife? What were his thoughts and actions on family and slavery? Benjamin Franklin was the most radical and outspoken founder to come out against slavery. But it took him most of his life to form these conclusions that he did and to come out as radically as he did against it. Join your historian friends, myself, Joe Woji, professor of history at Ryder University, joined as always by the lovely and talented celebrity historian, Brittany Smith with Philadelphian historian Thaddeus Sisko, Neil Ronk, chief historian and director of Christ Church Philadelphia, the church Benjamin Franklin helped personally build and fund, and where he was carried by 20,000, half the population of this city at the time, by everyday Philadelphians, workers, porters, perukes, cordwainers, seamstresses, everyday people like you, like me. No fancy schmancy dignitaries, working class, Philadelphians, regular people, as was his explicit wishes to his final resting place at 5th and Arch Streets, a block from the bridge that bears his name and from the park named after him too, where he flew that famous guy to his, with all those terrible little motherfuckers flying all around from that famous picture <laughs> of him doing that, that bears his name too. Today on Grim. You're listening to Grim Explicit Histories. Grim topics, extreme dark histories, folklore, and the paranormal for mature audiences. We keep it real. We keep it educational, thought provoking, like a motherfucker. I'm Joe Woji, and this is Grim. Dark histories, true crime for mature audiences. You're listening to Grim. Hey, hey, I'm Joe Woji, professor of history over at Ryder University. I am a Pennsylvanian. That's what they call us all who have earned degrees from Benjamin Franklin's school, the University of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvanians. Fitting enough for this audio documentary series. Fun fact, the Liberty Bell, before they called it the Liberty Bell, would ring for classes to begin at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, life-giving mother. The University of Pennsylvania is my life-giving mother. <laughs> has created professional opportunities in speaking into a microphone to you in the comfort of your home that Benjamin Franklin founded once upon a time a long, long, long time ago in 1740 joined each week as I am by the lovely and multi-talented life 
long Northeast Philadelphian, the celebrity historian Brittany Smith of the Museum of the American Revolution here in Philadelphia, joined also as we are by Philadelphian historian Ted Sisko and Neil Ronk, director and chief historian over at Christ Church Preservation Trust, Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin's church and where he is buried, the very tallest building in North America when he had that constructed once upon a time. With today, the breathtakingly lovely and astonishingly talented, the one, the only, Grim Philly's own, Antoinette Tony Levitt. Take a Grim Philly tour with, well, any one of us the next time you're in Philadelphia with us and want to take a history tour or a dark history tour or a true crime tour or a ghost tour. The red brick and the cobblestones and the streets and the sidewalks that we walk, at least in the very oldest parts of the city where we bring you on a Grim Philly tour, none of that dates any further than the 1790s. So, I mean, it is fair to say that Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, Sam Adams, my favorite Adams, they all walked on that stuff. I am just a humble history nerd, but <laughs> I get all nerdy excited about that shit. And then when you come back to this ever-so-humble little grim Philly podcast of ours here, you'll visualize that all the more clearly. It's, it's fucking cool. It's really cool. GrimPhilly.com to meet us in Philadelphia any day of the week. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for supporting this podcast on Patreon and helping us to keep bringing this free content to you. We could not do this without you. Patreon.com backslash Grim Philly to join the Grim family with us. Let's now examine the most famous Philadelphians view on family, children, slavery, and critical issues in the most serious, reflective, and thoughtful way that we are able. One of the things I find funny too, Al-Qaeda Watson, he's an American that came to visit him and he said that, and Franklin ate it up, he just amused himself with it basically. The guy didn't know French culture, so he walks into Franklin's rooms and Franklin's got, I think like nine or ten servants there, which is probably about the same amount of people that he had in Philadelphia. A mix of slaves and free people, which we'll talk about the next episode as well. We'll wrestle with his, we'll discuss his wrestling with the issue of slavery back then too. But he says that this guy walks in and every one of the French people bowed before him. And then the guy bowed back and he was like, yeah, um, dude, they're the servants. But he let like he let him bow to every single fucking one of them first <laughs> before he tells him that. But it's funny that when Franklin was there, when he first got there, before he signed the treaty, the British were like, oh, this motherfucker. He's the most famous American that there is. He's got to be up to something. So they employed spies and they wrote back weekly reports as love letters. They hid it in the garden in <laughs> Versailles and well, it wasn't Versailles yet, but they hid it in like this little hollow in a tree as love letters within the spaces in the blank spaces. There was like invisible ink in it with the real shit back for reports, but they were spying on him. His valet, he suspected was a spy and his personal secretary actually definitely was a spy. Yes. But he said, I think my valet is a spy, but he's a perfectly good valet. Why would I get rid of him? I know 
he's a spy. They're just going to fucking put another one here and I won't maybe know who they are. But all of these reports that they were writing back, it's funny because they sit because he's a scientist and he worked with electricity and they wrote back some science fiction fucking weird shit too, like crazy shit. They were like, dude, with other scientists from France, they're working on fucking big mirrors to capture and concentrate the light from the sun so that they could burn the English ships in the English Channel. And then they also theorized that they were like, he's going to make a big fucking chain and tie it from Calais all the way to Dover. And and first of all, it's going to fuck up the English shipping. But second of all, they're going to electric. They're going to electrify it, and it's going to blow up the whole fucking island. Like these were in the reports that they actually sent back home. Like crazy science fiction, along with the like real things. This weird speculation that they were doing because Franklin was a fucking genius, so he must be able to blow up the island with electricity. He was a badass. <laughs> that motherfucker snatched lightning from the skies. I kind of want to, kind of want to know what whoever was reading those reports. Yeah, like oh, really? some they must have been like get rid of this guy, bureaucrat. You know, <laughs> like oh, it's like the modern day equivalent, of like the space laser. Yes, Sorry, this intern yeah. didn't work out so well. <laughs> They're like, what are you guys doing over yeah. there? <laughs> Damn it, guys, focus. Yeah. <laughs> but the ship that he came over on, interestingly, it was called. He snuck out of Philadelphia. In secret, obviously, he didn't want to be captured by the British because, you know, they would suspect that he was trying to negotiate with them. But he snuck out on a ship called the Reprisal. Interestingly, when he got his ass reamed out over the Hutchinson letters in the cockpit in Whitehall, the fucking tweed suit that he was wearing, the specific suit that he was wearing, when he got the French to sign an open treaty of friendship and recognize America and give us openly military assistance when he signed that treaty with them he made sure he wore the same fucking suit the same tweed suit it was like his petty revenge. <laughs> but he's vengeful we mentioned that in the first episode that he was held grudges he part fucking of his really ledger. did yeah. it was like the box car in world war one though where we made them <laughs> sign the in that box car it wasn't a treaty of passenger side, car it yeah. was compiègne the armistice right? armistice yeah. and in the forest of compiègne hitler dug that same motherfucking car yeah. out and was like go back in that same car wouldn't let that shit go no nope. sign my treaty now my revenge i got it arguably he's way more out of control in london i mean it goes to the hellfire club but also he's in the in crowd at least among the whig politicians and this is where he does his chess playing this is where he He's going to be talking to the former William Pitt the Senior and the Earl of Chatham. It's where he talks to the Howe brothers. He's in the in crowd. And I think we mentioned it the last episode. I think had he not been embarrassed in the well of Parliament, I think he's that petty that empires are determined by embarrassment in his mind. He was a Londoner. I could see him staying in London. That is where he wanted to stay. Yeah. And he worked for reconciliation. Me oh, too, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I always see got, him. You up know, until he got reamed out. Yeah. I understand why a lot of the founders, our founding generation, didn't trust him. No. Because who is Franklin? He's yep. a chameleon. Yeah. And One of his biggest problems was the Stamp Act when he stood up in favor, or at least printed in favor right. of the Stamp Act, got him into a lot of trouble here in Philadelphia. Well, that's his wife when she comes to the fore. And when I read that he referred to his wife in London as a beer mug. What, compared to a champagne glass? Apparently. Wow. And she was still alive at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, that's pretty hard. 
course. This is a woman who I want to weep tears in a sense when I think of what Deborah Franklin sacrificed for that ingrate. Yeah, I think Um, he was a shitty, shitty husband. um, (laughs) She had to put up with a lot. That's the one shortcoming that historians agree that he had with his family. Yeah, he he was not a good family man. He sort of moved on and they were work partners almost. And she was directly responsible for continuing the income. She ran everything everything. when he was away and he had her to thank for that. And he used to brag that he married well because she was a good worker. The worker that every artisan should have in a wife. He used to brag. Don't you think his son's death from smallpox when he wanted to have him inoculated had a lot to do with his future relationship with Deborah who didn't want her son to be inoculated and so Ben kind of gave in to her at the moment. He said, I won't do it now and then he died. I've always thought yes, but we were talking about this a week ago and in an era where you lost children. That doesn't explain all of that to me. I mean, they lived in a fatalistic world and there's something about Deborah Franklin that I just looked at the number yesterday. They were married for 44 years. They were only together for 18 of them. Hmm. There's more than a there there. We were talking about this last week. Did she hate seafaring that much? I don't think so. I mean, maybe she or did. Or is she but... that self-aware that she can't help her husband? Is That's it possible that he developed this, I won't say hatred, it's a little bit too strong, but this resentment towards her over time? It wasn't right away. That's why later I, on in life he chose not to I come back. I think he back. took her for granted. Because at that point he only has one child, one legitimate child, a girl, and an illegitimate son. And that illegitimate son, no matter what happens, he's going to have to make a name for himself because he's not a legitimate son. So, But in some ways neither is Ben himself. He's not a gentleman. Well, no, because he has an illegitimate child. But I mean... no. Ben was never a gentleman. No, he was born in very humble circumstances. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the point. The Franklin family, when they had been in England, they were silk makers or silk dyers. So they nope. actually had a better trade than when they came over to America. When they come to America, nobody wants to fucking buy silk. Nobody has that kind of money. So they get into candle and soap making, which is a more humble. It's a trade, but it's a more humble trade. And there's a lot of fucking kids. 17. So he's got a more humble upbringing. And then the fact that he does it on his own, though. But his entire life, he credited what enabled him to retire at 42 years old was printing. That made him a fucking fortune he had a franchise basically he set up franchise print shops from rhode island down to bermuda and into the bahamas he had a lot of money coming in and i know people make a big deal out of the fact that he was like open source when you know before open source was open source he wouldn't take patents out on anything he did and he would say it's so that everybody can have it i've stood on the back of giants to be able to do what i'm doing so i don't want to charge anybody and have a patent on anything even though he was offered patents by some of the governors but he let everything he invented be used like the lightning rods. He printed that shit in Poor Richard's Almanac and he printed it in the Pennsylvania Gazette. This is how you make this. Here you go. There it is. I'm even showing it to you. You just bought a paper. Bam. There you go. There's the information. But he would have been held up in courts because in the colonial days, you had 13 different colonies. If somebody from another colony, he could have had lawsuits in 12 other colonies or all 13 colonies, hypothetically. And he just realized that that would be a big fucking headache that he didn't want. So he was like, you can use it. Fuck this. He saw ahead like a chess player. He did make a lot of money, though, off of the printing. He sold more almanacs than the Bible sold because you had to keep buying the almanac every year. You didn't have to keep buying the Bible every year, but he sold twenty five or 30,000 almanacs every year. He made money off of those. He was wealthy in his own right and able to then act like a gentleman, try to. He wanted to be a gentleman, but he knew he wasn't. 
Is that part of Franklin's relentless pursuit of respectability in Paris? Somebody who will have an open marriage with him, but will give him the respectability of perhaps marrying above his station? Yes. And I think maybe if we looked at it that way, because that's Franklin to a T, at no point in his life did he take his eye off that ball, that he had to improve his station constantly. I don't think the respectability is something that just happens later on in Paris, too. I mean, you can see even here in Philadelphia, he founds the Philosophical Societies. He's involved in founding the hospital. He's involved in all these different societies, and he joins the Masonic Lodge. He's involving himself in all these different activities that gentlemen would be involved with. In a different way because he wanted to help the common man. He wanted to help people have clean streets, lit yes, streets. Yes, but I think it was also like books. the the reputation that comes with being a part of that. I mean, I'm not saying he was against helping the common people, but I think it was also a bit of a prestige to be involved with those societies in and of themselves. Absolutely, so because like he was, was well-liked, he was seen, he was Right, prominent. so it was twofold for him. I mean, yes, he obviously made money helping off of it as well. Like that was a goal, but it because, I mean, he was always talking about doing good acts and that was kind of one of his overarching themes of his life regardless of his religious feelings i mean he was always focusing on doing good acts and having the right balance in the ledger book so yeah he got but that from i think cotton it was mather also back in boston when they were trying to train him for the church he yeah. picked up those ideas from cotton mather to help society right but i think there was also that prestige that neil's talking about that respectability that comes because like he knows that he he wasn't born into that he's not an elite by birth and that goes into the honor that all these men are chasing in this 18th century world which they all are aspiring to because they're all you know on a certain level and every Every single one of them all the way up. I mean, whether they're Benjamin Franklin, who's working his way into respectability, or even Washington, Jeffrey. I mean, they all have this honor that they have that's really important and it's very different than it is today. Like, we don't have the same honor that they did, but that was something that they had to exercise and practice and uphold and defend. One of the things I think he'd be most proud of is the Philadelphia Academy, which becomes the University of Pennsylvania. And it was a much more hands-on institution under him than it becomes later, than it is now, clearly. Yeah. I think he would have been very proud proud of that institution, but also Pennsylvania Hospital, which morphs into part of that medical tradition that Philadelphia has. And that is never left. If you say, what is Philadelphia's 18th century legacy? Medicine. Yeah, medical mm-hmm. capital. Yeah, 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 medical. We're the medical capital of the we United are. States. We are. Don't let Boston. You and the medical school. I mean, we have, I remember at some point it was some ridiculous number, like one out of five doctors in America are yeah. still. Yeah. They're still they're Interestingly, the Liberty Bell rang for classes to start at University University. of Pennsylvania, which were conducted within the library company, and for the lectures to start and the anatomical demonstrations to begin right probably 50 feet away in the very first surgical center of the University of Pennsylvania in the nation. And that surgical theater that we discussed a little bit, I think, on one of our grave robbing episodes. Yeah, Yeah, when we're talking about the medical history of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. The Liberty Bell, before it was called the Liberty Bell, would ring for classes to start, for anatomical demonstrations to be. And he does have a statue. Benjamin Franklin, there is a statue over at Penn's campus. Yeah. Is that the one that you're thinking about, the seated Franklin on the... Uh, Yeah, I think I've seen... Yeah, yeah, right? the Constitution. Looking at the Constitution. One of the 
there's a lot of statues of yeah. Ben, and I think he would be very proud to know how large an imprint he's had on Philadelphia. Perhaps I think that would be something he'd be. Like, it's been. Yeah. It was always one of my favorite <laughs> quotes. But there was an author and social activist, a man named George Lippard, in the 1830s, and he was a rabble rouser. <laughs> so a Philly lo- guy. I love him. <laughs> he wrote children's books, but he also wrote murder mysteries. Oh. <laughs> and one of his friends. <laughs> They're related. By the way, Sin in the Quaker City, Joe, is one of those books. One of his friends is Edgar Allan Poe, George Lippard's friends. And he said, Sin in the Quaker City was too macabre for his taste. (laughs) And I was going, whoa, okay. But Lippard had a letter to the editor in a Philadelphia newspaper that was trying to gin up money for a statue to Benjamin Franklin. And he said, society does not need to put more money into a statue of a bloated ego. And I was thinking, could you write that today? Franklin's, in one way, the untouchable founding father. He does not get reevaluated. We're doing more right now in the last three hours than usually is talked about Franklin. We just go, he's a genius, and that's it. Boom. Yeah, we learn about him in the fourth grade and forget about him. He's the guy with the scraggly hair. He's old. He's overweight. And he's Well, I think that's, I think partially what helps protect his reputation is that he's, quite frankly, he's dead before you get to the extremely volatile politics of the early presidential campaigns. Like when everybody else is starting to mudsling each other and there's now a lot of infighting amongst the founding fathers, Franklin's already dead. He's out. Like, bye. Do we take statues <laughs> down for Franklin? You would not take statues down for Franklin. I mean, he's the only founding father to come out publicly and radically against slavery. Now, I guess to touch on well, it. John I guess. didn't believe in it. They didn't John Adams didn't have any slaves, right, but as slaves. far as founders that owned slaves, because Franklin wrestled with it his whole life. They all did, except for Grant. They all had slaves up until... Ulysses S. Grant had slaves? He had slaves Oh, yeah. His family, yeah. President. I did not know yeah. that. Mm-hmm. He did. Wow. But with, with Franklin, though, he took for granted... I mean, it's a, there's complexities of history. He was born into a society that just believed in a certain way of thinking. And so Franklin advertised for slaves. He let people buy advertisements in the Pennsylvania Gazette to sell slaves. He lived three blocks away from this slave auctions. He lived a block away from the first jailhouse in North America. I mean, it was a different time and place. He would have witnessed walking down Market Street you had on Sundays. They would whip people. If you didn't go to church for two weeks in a row, you could get whipped. In Pennsylvania, only 10 times (laughs) was biblical precedent that you weren't allowed to be, the Old Testament said, whipped more than 40 times. So most colonies said you could be lashed 39 times in case the guy whipping you miscounted. So you would have people being lashed in public, logged in public, put in branks, ducked, you know, like to dunk you out of the river, in and out of the river. All these crazy fucking public humiliations. Yeah, and you have the pillories, the stockades. You have all of these crazy physical punishments that this is a different time and place where they would brand people on their faces with an R for robbery, you know, I you got on your forehead for selling powder to Native Americans, I for Indian. If you did something three times, you were hanged. Three strikes, you're out. They see a scar on you because you got branded. This is like the time he's grown up in. So, And there's slave auctions and people take for granted that this is the way it is. He was raised in this environment and then came to 
go to the Bray School, which was a school that taught African-Americans. It was assumed it was popularly taught that African-Americans cannot learn the way Europeans can. And he witnessed kids learning the same. And he was like, no, they're just as fucking smart as everybody else. He dumped money into it. Him and Robert Morris joined into the First Abolitionist Society. He supported schools. Him and Francis Hopkinson, another founder, joined in on funding black schools. Him, along with another founder, Robert Morris, joined in on the First Abolitionist Society. Franklin was the very first president of the very first abolitionist society in America, but he doesn't embark on this until the end of his life. And now Washington may have freed all of his slaves upon his death, which was actually hard for him to do because everybody would have tried to convince him not to do it. But as far as Franklin goes, he's the only one to speak out in public against the evils of slavery. He let a couple of his slaves just kind of walked off. Like when he was in London, they walked off from Philly and he was like, nah, that's, fine don't you know don't don't chase them down george washington was a motherfucker would hunt down you know would have his slaves that escaped hunted down even though he released them from slavery at the end of his life but in in his will and in london in london yeah exactly exactly and we can get to that too about washington about martha and george but their slaves remain separate but in london he had brought over jemima and king were the two enslaved individuals that he brought over to london king and george oh you're probably right because Jemima probably would have stayed. That was his only female slave. Probably would have stayed with Deborah. But he brought King walked off though, and they found him in Suffolk. He walked off when they were like in the country, like sojourning in the country on a little vacation, I guess. And King just walked off. He wrote back to Deborah. Well, Deborah wrote to him inquiring how how are they? How are the servants, the slaves? And he was like, um, King ran away two years ago, <laughs> and we found him living in Suffolk, and uh, he doesn't want to come back. I offered him to come back, like, you know, because he's free when they hit English soil, but the lady that took him in was teaching him to read and write, was teaching him the violin, the clarinet, was teaching him Christianity. Apparently, Ben hadn't been teaching him Christianity, and she was treating him exemplary there was no reason for him to come back to franklin and he was probably the best household help the woman had ever had coming from slavery you know he would have you know it's a complex issue it's a really complex issue that these founders some of them wrestled with some of you know a lot of them didn't a lot of them just took for granted that this is the way it is and didn't think twice well there is that new book on king george the third that came out what three months ago Five years ago, Queen Elizabeth released all the private diaries and papers and letters of George III, just five years ago. And so we now this is have the, mad king? the last king of America. The mad yeah. king. But he wasn't mad during the revolution. No, yeah. This no. Was, no, but yeah. I mean, he's suffering from a disease that we can still get, syphilis, porphyria. Yeah. Oh, porphyria? Um, I thought it was syphilis. Uh-uh. Porphyria. I read porphyria as well. Oh, um, yeah. You know, he will go in and out of it as he ages. He awarded, by the as a sidebar, there was a doctor who saw him and claimed to have healed him. And George awarded him a medal for fixing him of being mad and then made him in charge of Bedlam, the guy. And then clearly he went more crazy at the yeah. end. <laughs> yeah. He was crazy when he awarded him the medal. The irony, though, is that George III was far farther ahead on the idea of abolition. In fact, in his letters, I have the book, he complained that he had no power over the slaveocracy in Mm. the Caribbean because they controlled parliament. And what he desired didn't matter. He couldn't unilaterally free every slave. And because 
it's politically impossible. And, it's a constitutional monarchy. So yeah, <laughs> and he was saying, you know, I understand it. That doesn't mean I have to like it. It was one of the biggest things with getting the southern states on board. We were expected to lose as it was, but without southern support, it would have been even more impossible. And mm-hmm. the southern states were not going to come on board with the northern states as much as the northern states may have disliked that way of life if they had tried to get them to abolish slavery. They tried to work that into the Constitution. As a matter of fact, in the Declaration of Independence, one of the first drafts, Jefferson penned in that we should abolish it. And the other Virginians were like, Tom, Thomas, what what the fuck is this? (laughs) You got to get this out of here. And Thomas Jefferson wrestled with it. Thomas Jefferson and Madison, they gave lip service to freeing slaves. And, And we talked at length about Thomas Jefferson in one of our episodes already, so need to revisit that. You guys alluded to George Washington. George Washington and Martha Washington, when they married, they were older. They were both from Virginia, so the way of life of the genteel, wealthy people was that they owned slaves. I mean, you can't hire people and work them as you own them, so they can't hire people that are free can't produce as much as somebody that you own. So that's why it wound up being the rich people were just buying people, buying a labor force instead of hiring somebody that was a free person. They could just walk away. But in any case, they retained their personal properties. Martha was a widow, Martha Cuspis, Martha Dandridge. She was a widow, so she retained her slaves and George retained his in his will upon his death. He actually had two wills, and we don't know what the first one said because he threw it in a fire. He said, take this one, put it in a fire, and then this is the one I want. So probably the one wasn't going to release the slaves. We don't know, though. We don't know what it said. And the second one, it released all of his slaves. Upon his uh, Martha's death. Martha's Upon Martha's death. Yeah. But Martha's were not freed. No, but she And they had intermarried. In she, the she could not free her slaves why legally she, because why? they were part of her estate. Oh. They belonged to her first husband. Okay. But she's Martha fucking Washington. If she wanted to free her slaves, I'm sure they wouldn't have said no. She could have put her fucking foot yeah, down. Yeah, she could have put her foot down. But they were part of the inheritance of her, her son. They were dower slaves, which means that they were also part of the estate that would have gone to her children and eventually grandchildren. But she still could have freedom she if she wanted to. She yeah. probably could. I mean, who's going to say? Yeah, that's what I mean. She's Martha. That's one of history's questions. Yeah. So much we don't know. They were unusual. Right. I find when Benjamin Franklin is in London, he replicates his family. This is, you know, when Joe's talking about weird stuff, this is super weird to me. You know, he has a wife at home, a daughter, and he replicates this exactly in London. Hmm. Margaret Stevenson is a beautiful version of the wife he called a beer mug. Hmm. And the daughter, Polly, is a better educated version of Sarah. And he advised her on what to read, what to write. Yes. He, he took her as a daughter. And interestingly, Margaret, Margaret Stevenson would have letters back and forth with Deborah. They wrote one another letters. After Margaret dies, Polly, the daughter, moves to Philadelphia. And we have letters from Polly sent back over to England saying that she stayed with the Bashes. So they would have, she would have lived right there. And Deborah would have known her. Of course, she would have stayed with Franklin's daughter, Sally, here. He adopted her son as, well, not adopted, but her son was his son. Tried wait, to wait, hook wait, daughter? Let me clarify Polly's for the daughter. listeners. Polly's. Tried to hook up Margaret's granddaughter, which would be Polly's, Polly's daughter. daughter, with his son, William. But Polly's daughter was Eliza. It was like a baby, basically. So William was like, nah, man, I'm not going to wait for her to grow up. Dad. 
thanks <laughs> for your good intentions. But they were really a surrogate family, and he kind of brought them together. This is something that, in a modern sense, we, we well, wouldn't have this in a modern sense. He did believe in open marriages. I mean, he, all, he proposed it, so. But it's almost to me that when he moved to London, he upped what he had been experiencing in Philadelphia. And when Deborah wrote to him, asking him to come home, when he come home, I miss it. This is why he doesn't come home. No. Are there any letters that survived between Deborah and Margaret? Yes. Hmm. And when Deborah has her stroke, if you want to say, where is Ben Franklin as his totally nastiest and self-centeredness? Yeah, this is the part. It's unforgivable. The idea that he will not come home. Mm-hmm. To see his dying wife? Yeah. yeah. Until his, until his business. She asks him to come home. And he, yeah. And he, he says in a letter something akin to, your entreaties are just a feeble plea for help. I know you can do this. I think the worst part is not only does he not come home, but constantly he keeps feeding her the idea that he will come home. Yes. And it's just that sheer like hope that he's going to come home and then he always says, oh, I missed the boat or oh, this happened or oh, this happened. That to me is worse than... It. Does he say that? Well, I missed the boat. No, no, but I mean basically <laughs> there was one part, I forget what it was. Oh, my but phone's broke, sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't get that message. It was I, something I, similar to like the boat wasn't available. Like I could not get the boat to come home. So and there's to me, another boat? I mean, fuck. To me, well, every spring that he was supposed to be, yeah. it'll be next spring. Next spring. Next there spring. was a year. I know early on there was a yearly boat from Philadelphia to London. There was a yearly boat. It was only one time a year. That was early on. I, now I don't know by 1774. I believe that's when she died. Yeah. How often the boats were at that point? But yeah, to me that that's his worst sin. Not that he wasn't coming home, just that he kept feeding her hope that he was going to come home, and then saying, "Up." Oh, Sorry, I'm not coming home now. If he would have just came out and told her, listen, I'm not coming home. He was in London 1757 to the early 1760s, and then he went back around 1764, 64 to 74. Yeah, something like that. that, So. And it's about a 28-day sea travel from Philadelphia to London. Yeah, way, back then. Because when he came home from, well, when he came home from London, this is 1780s now. It was late July to mid-September, the time frame to get back. It was like July 29th to September 15th was a boat ride. And if we so. want to talk about Polly a little bit more too, he really had a father-daughter sort of relationship with her. They, the two of them, corresponded when he left, and she's the one that was writing to him. About about marrying Dr. William Hewson and said, hey, I met this guy and it moved pretty quickly and hey, I, I think I love this guy, blah, blah, what do you think? And should I, she asked Franklin in a letter, should I, what do you think? Do you think I should marry him? And he said, you know, like he would say to a daughter, well, it sounds like he has a good employment, good prospects for money making and anyone that you love, I love, is what he said. Wow. And he walked her down the aisle and when she came to Philadelphia after her mother died, after, after Margaret died, when Polly came here, they stayed. They stayed in Philadelphia and they have descendants here right now and they were connected with the University of Pennsylvania as doctors. See, now that you said that, that just leads me to believe that he hated his family here. I was like, what was his relationship with Sally then? His because his Sally, daughter. he did not come home for her wedding and he refused to come home for her wedding. He because... didn't come home for either of his kids' weddings. No. He didn't come home for his wife's death, funeral. Not that he could have got here. With, and it was you know, Polly that was there at his deathbed. Yes. Hmm. Polly was there at his yes. deathbed, yes. And, you know, I've often thought... Now uh, I think even worse of Franklin. Oh, so wait, Sally in a family that, sense. Um, what's Apparently that? not. In a family Sally sense. In a family sense, yeah. Yeah, he was cold to wow. 
He was really like Deborah and and I remember and his daughter Sally. His daughter Sally, although he misses her wedding, although he doesn't come home, you know, and she's you know grows up without him, she never leaves his side. I mean, not leaves his side. She never abandons him. As far as that goes, she continues to write him, respect him, and he willed basically everything to her. That's because he wrote William. At that point, I probably would have done the same thing just to keep in the will. I'm surprised he didn't leave everything to Polly. And then she tore it the fuck down, though. Oh yeah, her and her husband Richard Stevenson was furious. Tore the house down. uh, That he left cheap condos. The mother, not Polly. Yeah. In the will, Franklin leaves her like a silver, like a fucking cup or something, right? I mean, yeah, fucking beer muggers. It, it was a nice beer mug. Disgraceful. I mean, here's a woman who is your surrogate wife. We don't know whether there was a sexual relationship or not. Whatever there were, there was just absolutely discreet, which is something you would not generally say about Franklin. But Benjamin Franklin leaves her virtually nothing. Wait, he gets he less discreet later. But a nice. But she died before. Didn't she die before Franklin? Kind. Oh, because I thought Polly. So we, Deborah, his wife in Philadelphia, died, died before in 1774. Right. We're talking about yeah. Margaret. And then Franklin died. And yeah, then exactly. Margaret died, and Polly came here. Then Franklin died. Then Polly died five years after Franklin. And Franklin died in 1790. Polly's husband died of septus, actually. While Franklin was then still there, it must there. have been Polly who gets this the awful present or the yeah. Right, because I mean, Margaret dies an, first. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, it is how weird that he was so bad to his actual family in real life while he was alive, but he was so better to them in death than he was to the adopted family. That he was so much better in life to the adopted family, and in death he leaves his real family everything else. Was he trying to make up for it? That's what I mean. A balance sheet, ledger sheet. Yeah, well, the ledger I've sheet again. The Neil yeah. There's something to the idea that. There's a price to greatness, and it's usually not paid by the great. Yeah. It's usually paid by those who love them. Deborah Franklin, you know, I can't imagine, even if she were never nearby, she could not possibly have heard this. But your wife's been patient in Philadelphia waiting for you, and you at some point call her a beer mug? Yeah. You know, like, that is so awful on Better so many wet, you know, like, whatever the analogy is, yeah. there's nothing good in being called a beer mug. No. Men are such assholes. <laughs> we can be, yes. How uncaring that is on so many different levels. That's definitely cold. And yet Sarah Franklin wasn't educated to the standards of her contemporaries in Philadelphia. Which is weird. Yeah, you, you think would think he, he would. would. And yet she did not, Sarah Franklin, hold it against William, you know, that he was educated to high standards. Well, maybe that was just part of the time. She was ex- not expecting to be. But, you know, think of the, but the then contemporaries. But tries to train, or not train, but he advises as a tutor would Polly these are the things that you should read when you read do predatory reading always read with a pen in your hand annotate everything that you read and these are the kind of things that you should read and these are the kind of pursuits that you should follow and he really tried to act as a father and a tutor but he wrote to Sally I haven't read the letters and we say Sarah's her name they call her Sally yeah but that's his daughter in Philadelphia and I haven't read the letters back and forth to them but from what I've read about the letters he continually wrote her and she didn't hold anything against him she just that was just the way it was at least not in the letters. <laughs> That's just the way it was as far as she no knew. No sympathy was, for the house, though. He was never there. No. No sympathy for the house. She fucking yeah, tore his house and down. his print shop down, down yeah. and built cheap condos. And the city bought it back again. And I believe what the city and the Fed, in conjunction with one another, came up with like grant money to reconstruct at least the properties, a couple of the rentals. They put the print shop, not where the print shop is, but there's a representation of the print shop in another 
area of the structure that they built and then they have like what they call the ghost house which is a frame around like franklin's what they would have called a mansion but to our standards would be like middle class where that would have been and where the print shop is today at what is it third and market third and market yeah between third and fourth on market yes truth of the matter is we don't have any idea what the house looked like do we architecturally we have this structure as far as it goes sketched like we know what it looks like in a sketch yeah but we but architecturally the designs aren't there it's just that little bit of the five different places the bunkers i call them where you can see part below ground Mm -hmm. it's kind of like marsh's house when you can see that one part below ground franklin has five or six different spots where you can you would find the foundation the most interesting thing to see there for guests if you're walking through franklin court is his privy yes in the back you get to see kitchen. Ironically, they would dig the privies next to the fresh drinking water very yeah. close, and oh. the one would pollute the other, yeah. and people yeah. would wind up getting dysentery. A little leaching going on there. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that you could see, too, is where he would have like buried his meat and a beer and meat and things like that you would need to keep through the summertime. And he lived pretty close to the Delaware River, so it would be true of anybody that lived back then, not just right. Ben Franklin, but you would dig like a 30-foot pit. And at least in Franklin's case, he had a 30-foot pit that was dug. And they would go in the middle of the winter, not Franklin. You know, Clearly, Deborah would have some of her employees or slaves do this, but they would go down to the Delaware River when, like right now, we're recording this oh, for in his ice January. Pit. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. his ice pit, exactly. And yeah, you would saw out like three-foot huge chunks of ice and then put them down 30-foot into that, and then it would slowly, slowly, slowly melt. And you would keep your meats a little bit more fresh that way. And you would keep your beers. You always had some ice for your little libations. The Delaware probably wasn't as polluted back then as it is now. (laughs) He did swim in it, so. Well, that was one of the things. He almost was to kind of spin off the swimming thing, you know. A lot of people didn't swim back then. And he almost, he entertained thoughts of being a swimming instructor professionally when he went to London the very first time. You know, he actually corresponded with a French scientist who was also very interested in swimming. And they wrote back and forth, and those letters exist somewhere. I think actually a podcast on his inventions and the stories about where they went and the things that we still have today that we still use, I think would be really interesting. People thought it was unsafe to swim for their yeah. health. For well, health. well can like you imagine so. in the Delaware River? It's unsafe today. It's unsafe today. Yeah, it's definitely unsafe today. <laughs> the Delaware River back then, it would have had two to 400 boats at yeah. the peak of it going into the harbor here. It's in also a lot a lot wider then because it yeah. came up to French Street, Yeah, mm-hmm. which is why it was French Street. It was the front because the Quaker said only God can be first. You can't right. have the name. Can't have First Street. Can't have First. So it starts at Front Street and then it goes second, third, yeah. fourth, fifth. Well, actually, did it come up to Water Street first? And then, I don't think it ever came up to Front Street. They say it came up to where the west side of Interstate 95 would be now. Yeah. About there. And, of course, it probably was some marsh land and, you know, wetlands and things. Not just actually the flowing river as we see it today. I don't think it would have been as delineated then. But then once they started dredging Mm -hmm. for bigger and bigger ships to come in, the river got narrower and narrower till it is what it is today. And we had what was called windmill island Island. out there and so you could sail little frigates in between and a really interesting cool fact historical fact to kind of throw in there that pretty much adjacent to where christ church is today if you go out into the delaware which is not the delaware now because it's made earth they call it they connected windmill island to the mainland 
That's where they would have had a pier that went out. And Joshua and Samuel Carpenter, the two brothers, one owned the wharf, one owned the tavern. But that's where the Tun Tavern was, which is where the Marines were founded and also where the Freemasons met when Franklin was here as the Grand Master of the Freemasons. Mm. That's where they both met. And now it is in the middle of the southbound lane of I-95. So you can't rebuild it where it is. So they have a replica of, well, I guess probably not really a replica, but they have have a a historic marker. Historic marker. Showing for for the Tun Tavern. I was going to say in Atlantic City, New Jersey, like in a whole different state, (laughs) they have a representation of the Tun Tavern because they figure, oh, if you're a Marine and you're nearby, you'll go there. (laughs) (laughs) Capitalizing on the name, basically. But it's in a different state because you can't actually build it where it's supposed to be in traffic. It's 14 foot of concrete and rebar wire on top. You can't even excavate it. And Stephen Gerard had a house out there as well. Stephen Gerard, the the wealthiest man in America in the general after Robert Morris was the wealthiest man in America, both who lived in Philadelphia here with us. And I think that we could discuss Benjamin Franklin, Philadelphia, the revolution. We could discuss all of this for another two hours, which we may do because there is another episode to follow. There is just so much on Benjamin Franklin. Stay tuned. We will be discussing a deep dive into the Hellfire Club, more on the connection with Franklin and the Masons, a little bit on the Philadelphia occupation, and we will wrap up Everything that we have not discussed yet today, we will continue our Benjamin Franklin deep dive here on Grimm. For Grimm, Joe Woji, historians Joe Woji, Brittany Smith, Ted Sisko, today with us, historian Neil Ronk, and Tony Levitt. Keep it beautiful, my friends. Tune back in next time for more Benjamin Franklin, and always keep it grim. Benjamin Franklin was the worshipful master of the Grand Masonic Lodge in Philadelphia and a welcome friend to the Hellfire Club. Join Grimm for our next installment in the life and times of founding father Benjamin Franklin, demon monkeys, hellfire caves, orgiastic sex, pagan fun, and (laughs) ladies. (laughs) There's always ladies. We look forward to bringing to you part six in our Benjamin Franklin audio documentary. We are just so honored that you listen to us. And we hope you will join us for our next installment in this Benjamin Franklin documentary for Philadelphia's own Benjamin Franklin in the Hellfire Caves. <laughs> <laughs>